You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 11th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. The UK's top cyber spy says Russian President Vladimir Putin is desperate and running short on munitions, troops and friends. Meanwhile, Uganda battles one of its largest outbreaks of Ebola. Is pandemic fatigue exacerbating its spread? And in the UK, the leader of the opposition thinks the government could collapse at any moment. Is he right? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Alex von Tunzelman and Ivor Geber will discuss the day's biggest stories and we'll head to Pennsylvania where Monocle's Chris Chermak has been spending time on the midterm campaign trail. The belief of people here at the Unconvention is that restoring democracy comes from taking the extremes out of politics. To do that, you have to remove the incentives for candidates to appeal to the extremes or the base of their own party. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by the historian, author and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman and by Ivor Geber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex. Hello to you both. Hi. Um, Ivor, first of all, this is, this is excitingly local radio of us. I understand that you are making some sort of appearance as a sort of stand-up tomorrow evening in Lewis. Yeah, in the old county town of Sussex, Lewis, where I have been persuaded to confess my hopeless and hapless career as a hack. Um, at the Catalyst Club, it's called, um, at 7.30 um, at the Lewis Arms, Tenor, a tenor, and there'll be other two other much more interesting speakers than me around. So thank you for giving me the space. Oh, you're almost literally here all week, try the fish, etc. No, I, I, I am interested in this because, as, as you will know, any sort of informal gathering of hacks very often devolves into people discussing with usually amount of fond relish the greatest balls-ups they may have perpetrated during their career. W- w- would you like to share one with the listeners? Oh, so so many. Um, <laughs> God, where to start? There are twenty. I've got little. I've, I've got my top twenty. Um, um, tw- top twenty, and some of them are vaguely serious, um, and some of them are ridiculous. I'll tell you one really stupid thing I did. I was sitting at Barco Airport and waiting to go home to London. I'd done an assignment there, and a man came up to me. My defence, by the way, he was wearing a lanyard, and he had a, a large pa- envelope. And he said, are you going to London? I said, I said, would you take this envelope for me? And I said, why not? Yeah, and what he could said, go wrong? Here's, yeah. here's, a, here's a telephone number. Will you call this man and hand over the envelope? Which I did, and I handed it over. And I, th- well, 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 and I just thought nothing. I told my family when I got home. They said, you must be off your head. <laughs> he told me. I said, what's in the envelope? He said, oh, I'm from Hermes, and we're opening a new store in Baku, and we haven't sent mm. out the invitations on time. And he showed me, here's a copy of the invitation, and we want them posted from London, we think it would be classier anyway. The fact they were impregnated with heroin or cocaine, I have no idea. I, I, I have now the vague concern that some ghastly geostrategic catastrophe of relatively recent history is in some way your fault. <laughs> well, Andrew, my defence then and now is he was wearing a lanyard. He, ha- he looked official. So the, the, the Stanford University experiment made flesh, basically. 
the Stanford... I, I'm thinking of the right one, aren't I? Stanford Prison Experiment? Stanford Prison Experiment. One of those two. One of those ones about people sub- submitting to authority. Was yes. That, was that, that wasn't the one yeah. with the electric shocks, No, that was, was that, that, that was... He, but the person... Was the other one. You know what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if you've got a lanyard, I'll do what I'm told. <laughs> Weirdly, actually, if subscribers to the Monocle Minute will be aware that the weekend edition contained a digression by me on the subject of lanyards and what they denote. <laughs> we have drifted into the weeds very, very early. We will drift out of them very, very shortly. But before we do that, Alex, because we are going to be addressing the subject vaguely later in the show... Let's give your latest book another thrash. <laughs> so I've written a book on statues called Fallen Idols, 12 statues that made history about the putting up and pulling down of statues in modern history, um, which, yes, indeed, continues to be a subject uh, that infiltrates the news agenda. And the title of that book, one more time? Fallen Idols. It is, listeners, it is very good. I've read it and everything. But we will start tonight's show proper here in the UK, where Sir Jeremy Fleming, director of British Signals Intelligence Shop GCHQ, has described Russia's position vis-à-vis Ukraine as desperate. Granted that it would raise eyebrows if someone in Sir Jeremy's position vouchsafed that President Vladimir Putin's attempted conquest of Ukraine was going precisely according to plan, but it is worth recalling that throughout this conflict, Western intelligence sources have often had a better idea of what Russia is about to do than Russia has. Sir Jeremy suggested that Russia's military was running low on ammunition and equipment and its commanders growing proportionately short on patience with their command-in-chief. Um, Ivor, does all this sound more or less plausible to you? I hope so, because he <laughs> sounded very confident that we knew that Russia wasn't getting any sort of battlefield nukes ready, um, a, so- a sort of confidence that one likes to believe um is based on fact. Um, I don't know how much British intelligence was to was to take the credit, but certainly the US intelligence were pretty damn accurate on mm. what the Russians were doing prior to the outbreak of war. And one assumes they have been constantly feeding and updating the Ukrainians. So I hope he's right. Um, but, you know, I'll tell you after the Holocaust, uh, you know, it, it, it is... We, we, we just don't know, but I hope he knows. And that's their job. And GCHQ has a re- decent reputation amongst what are called the Five Eyes, the, the intelligence agencies of Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United States and Britain. Um, so, yeah, it was. I think it was a good thing to say. I think now was a good time to, if reassurance is correct, it was a good time to say it. Uh, Alex, on the subject of the discontent that Sir Jeremy says is brewing among the Russian high command, um, there are obvious historical parallels for that where Russia is concerned, you know, complacent autocratic regime pitches military into conflict it is in no position to win soldiers start getting a bit irritated with the maggot-ridden rations uh, and begin forming associations which they call soviets etc it is weird isn't it that we are in a position where the best case scenario seems like some sort of coup d'etat in russia well, I mean, yes, I suppose so. Although, yes, as you say, not without historical precedent, that being the case. You're going back quite a long way with your precedent, mm. um, over 100 years. But yeah, I mean, certainly more recent ones than that as well, really, in terms of these these kind of coups that come about. I mean, who knows? I think a lot of what Jeremy Fleming said is 
also tallying quite a lot with what a what a lot of observers on the ground are saying. I mean, it didn't seem to me that his speech added an awful lot to our knowledge, apart from really just confirming, I suppose, mm. um, a lot of a lot of suspicions we have. You know that, I mean, clearly Putin's judgment is flawed. That there is a weakness there. That there is a kind of lack of strategic, um, you know, really kind of. <laughs> coherence perhaps to to the plan and so on so I mean you know I think it's very, very I mean it's notoriously very very hard to see inside the Kremlin mm. um, and to see what's going on but uh, but yeah I mean I think there's there's certainly reason to think that it's not going well I mean that's that's very obvious to anyone Jeremy Fleming made an interesting point didn't he that because Putin is so autocratic he has surrounded himself with nobody who's going to question his decision. He's making bad decisions. There's nobody who's saying, are you sure, President? And I think that is quite an, a, a, a reasonable explanation for some of the ridic no, ridiculous, the strategic errors he's clearly made. However, it does also suggest that if there were a palace coup, it would only be a Putin Mark II who replaces him. Um, in the days of the Soviet Union, there was actually a slightly broader range of ideologues, mm. you know, within the communist structure available. And we did see changes in policy as a result of internal changes. I'm not confident that would happen with Putin, unless, of course, the army moved in. Um, but even though the head of the armies tended to be very close to Putin. So it's bleak. It's bleak. Uh, Alex, one final thought on this one before we move on. So Jeremy also suggested that Russia's public uh, was beginning to become somewhat weary uh, of the whole endeavour. Does that sound plausible to you? I mean, basically, do they know enough to be fed up with it? Obviously, some things would be getting through to people. There would be people who know people who've lost people and so on and so on. But we're a fair way from any kind of critical mass there, aren't we? Probably, yes. Although, I mean, what he did underline, which I think, again, you know, you can freely observe, is, for instance, the flight from the military draft, mm -hmm. you know, that you could see young men of fighting age pouring out of Russia as fast as they could get out when that was announced. And I mean, that doesn't really speak of people, you know, running to sign up, does it? I it mean, does not. You know, Russia's a big country and there's a lot of different diversity and difference within it. And I certainly wouldn't... Um, risk kind of very, very generalised pronouncements. But I think you can see from things like that, that certainly among certain groups, possibly elite groups, possibly people with better information, there is clearly a bit of fear about what's happening next and not universal support. So, you know, that tells us something. And I suppose it will depend. On the other hand, if all the people who want Putin gone leave, then that also has an effect um, on the overall picture. So it's I think at the moment it's very, very hard to know. And it's I think it's very clear that Putin's propaganda has worked far better inside Russia than it has worked outside it as a general mm. as a general rule. But, you know, there is a certain kind of, you know, I mean, Again, as Jeremy Fleming said, but it's very obvious that, you know, the army is not well supplied. And that includes with things like food as well as with uh, weapons and so on. You know, that there clearly is a level of fatigue going on um, at the moment. And, you know, that will filter back to people.
Well, let's look now at Uganda, currently grappling with an outbreak of Ebola, which has killed at least 48 people, including four health workers. The current outbreak is of the Sudan strain of Ebola, for which there is presently no vaccine. By way of subsidiary woe, this outbreak occurs at a time when, for obvious reasons, it is harder to motivate global support, or indeed interest, in any kind of viral epidemic, unlike the last major Ebola outbreak roughly eight years ago, which commanded global headlines. Um, Ivor, is it now difficult to report a, a major health story? And this is, I mean, a potentially major health story. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's pandemic fatigue, isn't it? Um, people have been through two years, more than two years of coronavirus. It's not gone away. There are in the UK, there are signs that it's, it's, it's infections are rising. Africa is seen as, you know, Oft, there's lots of disease there. I mean, malaria is still a major issue and um, Ebola is just seen as one more. They also don't have, you know, it's prevention is, is as bad as... Cu- they don't have the public health facilities to 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 retain to restrain viruses, and so it's much more vulnerable. And yet they don't have the infrastructure once the virus starts. So it's a pretty bleak picture. Um, and I do hope, given how virulent Ebola is and how um, little protection there is against this particular strain, I think the World Health Organization has made an appeal today. I, I think that the countries of the world should see it as a priority to send PPE equipment. They're very short of it in Uganda. And there are two viruses in de- two vaccines in development mm. at the moment. And let's hope that they are developed at the same speed as the, the COVID-19 vaccine was developed, because that is going to be the only answer to this. Well, on that thought, Alex, and this is a potentially excitingly contrarian hot take, which has just popped into my head. Um, is it arguable that for the people actually trying to do the work of combating a viral outbreak, a relative lack of public interest and media attention is actually something of a bonus? Because the less information there is, the less disinformation and hysteria and panic and nonsense there is. And over the last couple of years, we have seen quite the wave of misinformation, nonsense and hysteria. Yes, um, a very significant wave of exactly that. I mean, interesting question. I think probably there is some sort of genuine tipping point around you do need enough international interest to, um, as Ivor has said, you know, make sure those vaccines are created and Mm. so on. Um, Some level of interest is important. And as we know, with Ebola in the past, it has spread to cases elsewhere in the world. And it's incredibly dangerous and very hard to contain. So, I mean, I would have thought, even from a completely selfish point of view, that rich Western countries really ought to want to do something about this before it becomes their problem as well. And, you know, yes, of course, you're always going to have these crowds of, um, you know, for want of a better word, insane people um, (laughs) saying mad things. But ultimately, I think, you know, you you can't really let that stand in the way of public health. It's just quite interesting. And I think certainly interesting. Well, I, I know a lot of screenwriters I know, for instance, have now discussed that we really have to rethink how we write zombie films, because actually you've got to have about 40 percent of the population denying anything's happening or putting themselves forward to get eaten and so forth. I think we all underestimated quite how many people would behave in this way. Is there a difficulty here, though, either that depending on the government in charge of the place where an outbreak uh, of any kind is occurring, that a relative 
lack of media interest, pandemic fatigue, call it what you will, does rather make their job in playing things down easier, as we are seeing President Yari Museveni of Uganda trying to do, saying Uganda's completely safe if people should come and visit and so on. We say if people come and visit, Uganda has a significant tourist industry in terms of wildlife parks. Um, and it wouldn't be keen on spreading the news that there is Ebola across the country. It's confined only to one region at the moment. But there is a real self-interest in not overplaying it, in downplaying mm. it, for understandable reasons. In addition, not just tourists, but business contacts, businessmen who might be thinking of investing in Uganda are going to be reluctant to go. So, yeah, um, it's, not a, it's not an unintelligent thing to do, even if it's the wrong thing to do. So, yeah, we do see that frequently happening, and it is happening reportedly in the case of Uganda. Uh, just finally on this, Ivor, and, and hooking into your full-time job as a, a, poli- a, a political journalism reporting boffin, now, instru- boffin I like that word. now instructing people in how to do it, did we as a trade learn anything from the COVID-19 pandemic in how to report a health emergency? <sighs> I'll tell you in 10 years' time. I mean, <laughs> it's very difficult to say now. You know, we, we would need to wait for the next pandemic to say, yeah, we've learned. I mean, I have to say, I don't think the reporting, and I can only speak for the UK because I couldn't travel, um, I don't think the reporting was that bad. Mm. And I think in particular the broadcasters did a great job. So lessons to be learnt. Well, there are certainly, I think the BBC in particular has got over its very bad habit of feeling it has to balance, like a uh, as it did with climate change, for example, or even Brexit. They didn't feel obliged to have somebody, when they had a medical expert set talking about COVID, they didn't feel obliged to have somebody to say, it's all down to 5G. <laughs> um, ignore this man. And, and we should be thankful for that. But I do think that actually the broadcasters and the journalists, more or less, I mean, the Financial Times, for example, did some fantastic data work in tracking the, the disease. So, yeah, there might be lessons to be learned, but I think we should, there are other things for journalists should be beating themselves up about rather than their coverage of the pandemic. I mean, I could start. Would you like to a lecture on the problems of the British press? Uh, no, that's tomorrow night at the Catalyst Club in Lewis. Uh, <laughs> uh, as I understand it, tickets still available. Um, Ivor and Alex, uh, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you both later in the show. But it's time now to take a look at the state of US politics ahead of next month's midterm congressional and other elections. And this week, Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack headed to Philadelphia for a different kind of political convention. Jason Grimay knows how it sounds. Working for the last 15 years promoting bipartisanship in the United States? Yeah. On one hand, people have been saying, how's that going? Ha ha ha, this must be uh, a pretty tough job. And at the same time, I think people see it as much more important than they might have appreciated. Grimay is head of the Bipartisan Policy Center. It's a think tank in Washington, D.C. that works with lawmakers to find common ground and policies. Even as the U.S. is gearing up for another pivotal election in November, Grimay says there's a lot more common ground out there than you would think. The vast majority of policymakers are actually really pretty good people with some pretty bad incentives. And we work to support the folks who are doing the hard work of actually drafting real legislation. The surprising news for many is that the Congress was exceptionally productive in the last two years. They passed over a dozen significant bipartisan pieces of legislation from issues relating to big infrastructure investment to gun control, the Violence Against Women's Act, 
They did big efforts around water infrastructure, major investment in U.S. technology competitiveness. And that doesn't get covered nearly as much as the shouting from the edges. I spoke with Creme at an event the Bipartisan Policy Center co-organized on Friday called the Unconvention. It was at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, bringing together lawmakers, activists, media, and members of the public interested in restoring some common sense to American politics. This is CNN host Michael Smirkanish explaining the concept. About a year ago, I had an idea. It occurred to me that the partisans get together on a regular basis, not the least of which is a convention every four years. They put us in this position. But what about the rest of us? Like, when do we ever get to hang together? The choice of venue was no accident, since the unconvention wasn't just about working together, but also about protecting American democracy from falling off a cliff in upcoming elections. President Joe Biden chose Philadelphia's Independence Mall for his own speech about this over the summer. But as I stand here tonight, equality and democracy are under assault. We do ourselves no favor to pretend otherwise. So tonight, I've come to this place where it all began. The belief of people here at the unconvention is that restoring democracy comes from taking the extremes out of politics. To do that, you have to remove the incentives for candidates to appeal to the extremes, or the base of their own party. Fifteen years ago, people understood that the democracy had challenges, but I don't think anybody really felt like it was fragile to the point that uh, we could wind up having a different imagination of America than we had. And since the you know, January 6th and uh, all the anger that has been floating in our system, I think now people no longer imagine that our democracy is you know, just a sure thing unless we actually work to defend it. Some of the key ideas talked about at Unconvention included ending partisan redistricting in states, confronting a partisan media landscape, and even little things like getting lawmakers to actually talk to each other again. But one of the biggest talking points is the primary process in the United States. The primaries are those elections within the Republican and Democratic parties to choose their candidates for general elections. On the Republican side, Donald Trump's endorsement has become a sort of litmus test for congressional primaries. That means you either back Trump, including his false claims that the 2020 election was stolen, or you risk losing the Republican primary against a candidate who does. That's basically what we've seen across the country ahead of this November's midterm congressional elections. We have a system of party primaries by which very few Americans wind up electing the vast majority of our leaders because most seats are safe for one party or another and the primaries effectively determine the outcome. This is Nick Troiano, head of a group called Unite America, which also co-organized the unconvention. Unite America has been lobbying to end partisan primaries and introduce things like ranked choice voting in states across the country. I'm excited as we see states like Alaska that just created a new system of a top four nonpartisan primary that gives every voter a voice and it incentivizes candidates to have to campaign to a broad electorate. I think if we're able to accomplish that reform in just a handful of more states, it would have a big impact on Congress because it liberates two senators and many representatives from each of those states who are no longer beholden to their party. So I don't think we have to accomplish it in every state, but if we can get it done enough to have an impact on Congress, I think we can actually see how 
we can have a more functional and representative government. Ranked choice voting is on the ballot in Nevada this November, and Troiano's goal is to double the number of states offering nonpartisan elections by 2025. Until those reforms start to gain some traction, though, this November's congressional election is really about old-fashioned campaigning, convincing voters to reject the extremes especially those people tempted to undermine American democracy. You know, for us at the Lincoln Project, the focus has always been on the, coincidentally, the Bannon line. This is Tara Setmeyer, a former Republican communications strategist who left the party after the 2020 election. The Lincoln Project is a sort of home for disillusioned Republicans that's been running ad campaigns seeking to defeat Trump-backed candidates. Steve Bannon once said that you only need to pull about 4 to 7% of Republicans away and Trump would lose. And ultimately we did see that. A lot of moderate or disaffected Republicans said we can't do this again and did not vote for Donald Trump, they voted for Joe Biden, and that pushed Joe Biden over the edge there. In other words, the goal is not necessarily to humiliate the extreme, but to convince just enough people to ensure that Trumpism is no longer a winning electoral strategy. To send the parties a message that extreme rhetoric might win you primaries, but it doesn't actually win you the November election. Doing that would allow these sunny optimists at the unconvention the time they need to change the incentives for our elected officials for the better. For Monocle in Philadelphia, I'm Chris Chermak. Thank you, Chris. And on the subject of Philadelphia, and Alex, this is of particular interest to you, as we cunningly telegraphed by plugging your new book at the top of the show, um, Philadelphia is having a wrangle over a statue, specifically one of Christopher Columbus. Um, so what do you think about how they've dealt with it? They've put it in a box, uh, which has this week been painted in the colours of the Italian flag. That's right, yes. It's in a sort of 22-foot box um, in Marconi Plaza. Um, while there is an ongoing legal dispute um, about what to do about removing it or leaving it. Um, but it's become a kind of interesting point of contention because, you know, Columbus statues were attacked a lot during the protests after the death of George Floyd. Um, you know, a lot of them were kind of pulled down in the US. Um, there was one in Richmond, Virginia that was set on fire and dumped in a lake, one in Baltimore that was dumped in the harbour, um, one in Houston, Texas, painted red and its hand hacked off and so on. You know, really lots of them were attacked. So this one in Philadelphia was boxed, yes, mm. and they've sort of left it there and they're disputing what to do about it legally, which often takes forever. I mean, but it seems that the Italian-American community in uh, in Philadelphia have have actually sort of are now coalescing around this statue. So that, we think, who painted the Italian flag on it is the Italian-American community who have now decided to take Columbus to heart, whereas, of course, people supporting kind of indigenous people are very much against him. So that's sort of where the battle is. I mean, I will say in Philadelphia, I mean, I you know, Columbus has a pretty shady history and there's lots of Italian-Americans one might rather memorialise. Um, in Philadelphia, one of my favourite statues is of uh, the fictional boxer Rocky Balboa, <laughs> played by Sylvester Stallone, who is immortalised outside the Philadelphia Museum of Art at the top of what are known as the Rocky Steps. So, uh, so perhaps that's a, a better one too. Also, if we're being fabulously pedantic, and why not? At the time Christopher Columbus set off, the Italian flag, as we now know it, would not necessarily have been a thing, would it? Italy, not really a thing. Mm. 
Mm. No. Um, no. Italy is merely a geographic expression. <laughs> that was Metternich. Well, well, you can go and tell Philadelphia's Italian-Americans that, but um, certainly I think there seems to be this interesting dispute over it now. And, you know, it's very fraught in the city uh, what should be done with it. So at the moment, the box remains, and now the box is rather decorative. So, so I suppose we'll see. They'll work it out. They, they, they could just move the statue and leave the box. That, that would seem to make know, everybody happy. Might well, be Schrodinger's exactly. statue. Who knows if it's in there or not? Uh, we will doubtless come back to that one, uh, but we will move along and look at the United Kingdom, where the opposition Labour Party is dropping ever less subtle hints about how very much it would enjoy a general election at some point in the very near future. Opposition leader Sakir Starmer has announced a shake-up of his inner cohort and declared that the party is henceforth on an election footing. The potential obstacle to this desire is that the calling of a general election is in the gift of recently installed Prime Minister Liz Truss, who is presumably reading the same polls Sir Keir is and would probably prefer not to lose office in a humiliating landslide before she has finished unpacking. Um, Either she has a working majority right now of 69 uh, in the House of Commons. Is there any earthly reason why she would call a general election? The, her only hope realistically could be maybe I just fall back into office with my own mandate and a working majority of half a dozen if I'm lucky. Well, you know, and and the moon might be made of blue cheese. No, she won't (laughs) call an election till she has to, but she could be forced to. She, if she loses a vote in the House of Commons on what's called a confidence issue and any defeat on a finance matter is regarded as a confidence issue, she would she would have to go to the palace. She would have to ask the king for a a a dissolution. And she could couldn't she she just resign and we could have another Tory leadership (laughs) contest? The last one was such fun and didn't go on nearly long enough. Uh, Well, you can't keep repeating your old triumphs. I think that um, it it would not be feasible because the only way she would lose a finance bill is if sufficient number, with not that many as you point out, 35 Tory MPs say, up with this we will not put, and there's certainly more than that at the moment saying it, and if they voted with Labour, she could be forced. However, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. Mm. I don't think that will happen. I think she will cling on because those Tory MPs, they might be fed up with Liz Truss, but they'd rather like to keep their jobs. And they know by bringing her down, their chances with current poll ratings are pretty minimal. There would be a Tory wipeout. So my best guess is that she will hang on, but she will have to compromise because those Tory backbenchers have her by the short and curlies, if you'll excuse the expression of vulgarity. Because hilariously, Alex, as things presently stand, Liz Truss can hang on till January 2025 um, if, if they can't shift her. I mean, theoretically, yes. Yes, that is, you know, that's the system that we have in, in the UK. She can. Um, I think it will be a difficult path for the reasons that Ivor has outlined. But I also, there is that tension. He's absolutely right to underline that, you know, looking at the polls at the moment and, you know, looking at the government at the moment, I'm not at all sure those polls are going to improve anytime soon, especially given that the next few months are likely to be extremely hard on a lot Mm. of the British public. Um, So unless this radical plan for growth somehow works in defiance of, as far as I can see, almost every expert um, and market who has passed any form of commentary, um, then I think 
you know, those aren't going up anytime soon. And yes, indeed, I mean, you know, you, you everybody there will lose their jobs. I mean, at the moment, you know, you've got Labour on some polls on a 30-point lead. I mean, that's kind of an extinction-level event. Uh, pretty much, yeah. If, if translated to a general election, that would leave the Tories with about 60 seats uh, in the Commons, um, of which I think Liz Truss's would just about be one of them. But I, 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 don't, think the rema- I don't think the remaining survivors would necessarily thank her. Um, never, <laughs> nevertheless, Ivor... Obviously, Labour wants an election, and obviously they don't get to decide whether or not there is one. That being the case, is it possibly a bit? Is it a bit premature for Labour to start talking about it or positioning themselves for one, and starting to try and look like a government in waiting? No, it's not anyway, because the opposition has always got to be ready in case the government f- falls. But actually, what's gone on with the Labour Party today is a very nerdy reasoning for this with a split that has been deep within the Labour Party between what's called Lotto, the leader of the party's office, that doesn't quite work, leader of the opposition's office, Lotto, and the party headquarters. And Keir Starmer is trying to bring those two organisations which have been feuding for a long time together. So it's an administrative move, but he's dressed it up as saying we're ready to go for an election because on that basis nobody can really oppose the move although lots of people will be unhappy. The other thing, Alex, that Labour may yet have to adjust to is not running against Liz Truss. Um, I I notice, for in fact, that you can still get what I think is a very, very tempting 14 to 1 on Boris Johnson leading the Tory party into the next election. Uh, How much difference does it make to Labour if the Tories change leader yet again before there is another election? Well, it's a mixed blessing, should we say, at best. Um, I mean, I think, you know, in a way, Starmer, I think, has certain advantages over trust. He comes across as a more serious person, I think, you know, comes across as kind of uh, a rather more intelligent, I'm afraid to say, um, and and stable, perhaps. Um, On the other hand, say they were to install someone like Rishi Sunak, that would neutralise some of those advantages. Mm. I mean, I'm not his biggest fan, but he does at least speak like a grown-up and did actually predict quite a lot of what has gone wrong. Um, Boris Johnson, who knows? That's the the banter option, isn't it, Andrew? That's the all all bets are off. You Um, you know he wants it, though, don't you? I mean, mean, he's thinking of this as his Churchillian comeback, reinstalled by a grateful nation, realising the error of its ways. I mean, he will continue to think that probably forever. And it's really whether the Grateful Nation decides to indulge him or not, isn't it? I mean, I can't see it happening immediately. But, um, you know, if the Tories do change leader again, of course, that will also make them look spectacularly misguided. I I think it's inconceivable they could get away with it, particularly as it appeared, 160,000, actually fewer than that, um, members of the Tory party Mm. chose the last one. I do think it's quite... possible if they do want to chose it that they, the MP, the MPs can make the rules up as they go along the, what's called the 1922 committee they'll change the rules to make sure this time that the members don't get a vote so it would be slightly less messy it would be quicker but it's still inconceivable they'd have five leaders in four, three years or whatever it is. Inconceivable. It's super chaotic and that's a big attack line. This is an Australian you're talking to, that's nothing. Just finally on this, Ivor, I I know that it's it's probably unlikely 
that Liz Truss is going to enlist you as her senior advisor, although that's well, she, she, she's made some fairly curious appointments before now. Um, but if, if, if she was to do that, what counsel would you give her? Is there anything, and thinking back to those abysmal poll ratings that, that Alex mentioned, is there anything she can actually do to turn this around? Yes, I think there is. Although, just to add, add as, a, as a, an, your intro, I was asked by a member of Boris Johnson's team when he was mayor of London if I'd like to be his media advisor and offer. I was able to refuse. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think there is something she can do. And she did it briefly in Birmingham in two ways. She's shown an ability to turn. She mm. turned on the 45p tax break. She's also making some very interesting moves on Europe. The Northern Ireland office, and that's the big bugbear between UK and EU, are suddenly appearing to be (coughs) very willing to listen to compromise with the Republic. And perhaps more significantly, or just significantly, she went to this meeting in Prague, Mm. which she had denounced this organisation. It was Europe, the EU, trying to extend its remit. She went, she participated, and perhaps even more importantly, she had apparently a very positive one-to-one with President Macron, who only a few weeks ago she had said, is he a friend or foe? And she said, the jury's out. So she is showing some flexibility. And so if I was to advise her... Um, I would say keep listening, keep showing that you're prepared to move if you're in an untenable position. Her great hero, Margaret Thatcher, people called her the Iron Lady. She showed a great willingness to continue to appear to be the Iron Lady, but to shift and move as circumstances dictated, which is why she managed to stay in power for so long as she did. So, Liz, just keep listening to the wind, keep listening to people like me, and you'll do okay. (laughs) Well, finally on today's show, and in a sort of related story, transcendentally difficult though it is to imagine that anything associated with Brexit could turn out to be oversold, underplanned, expensive, pointless, a grotesque waste of everyone's time and energy, and worthy of having its planning described as a recipe for failure and its reality as an unadulterated shambles, here is where we appear to be. An investigation by the National Audit Office is to occur into Unboxed, the nationwide wingding hailed by the government as the Festival of Brexit, the long and short of which was that it cost a hefty stack to stage and almost nobody went. Um, Alex, hand on heart, before you were told that we would be discussing it on today's edition of the monocle daily did you even know that this was happening because i'm i'm not sure i did no i knew i knew that they had it planned but i didn't know that it had already happened i'm afraid blink and you'll miss it i know that the i I was aware the phrase festival of brexit had popped into my head from somewhere but i assumed that that might have been a sort of sarcastic euphemism for 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 something i thought it was mentioned under sort of theresa may or something it was it was and then i actually being a political nerd i was aware of it because i was rather encouraged when it was announced that the person who had devised the london Olympics opening and closing ceremony was going to design and choreograph and I, you know, most of us thought that opening and closing ceremony were brilliant so I thought, well this might be interesting and then it disappeared from view and the next time I notice it is today when it's being completely um, devastated um, by the criticism that it hardly happened uh, Well, clearly Alex, there was a, there was a difficulty with the marketing um, mm. but now that you've managed to acquaint yourself somewhat, I'm sure, with the reality of it, are you impressed? I mean, it's it's hard not to be sort of impressed in one sense by something that 
claims it's going to have 66 to 69 million visitors, which is more or less the entire population. I think that was David That was, that was <laughs> ambitious. That was and ambitious. It achieves 0.36% of that. That's a bit like saying this program has a theoretical audience of 7 billion people. Well, yes. Yes, it is. Well, you know, if you achieve 0.36% <laughs> of that, where is it, bad, where is it in reality we barely get half that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I mean, I, I think it's sort of almost impressive by its very failure. I mean... You know, and obviously there are really serious questions about things like where the money's gone and, you know, what on earth happened and so forth. There is also a little bit of comedy, though, let's be honest, in just how badly this seems to have been stuffed up. Um, and I mean, you know, I think it's a shame, really, because in some ways, although clearly like many other um various creative people, I wasn't hugely in the mood to celebrate Brexit. I do think that these sort of festivals can be great opportunities mm. for for creativity to flourish and so forth. And of course, you know, with writing about statues, I'm very interested in memorialisation and this sort of thing. But um, <laughs> the fact that it managed to pass me by when this is what I watched for does tell you something <laughs> about the level of publicity. Um, Ivor, have you been to see any of it or are you tempted by any of it? For example, the Sea Monster, spelt S-double-E, you can see what they've done there, in Western Supermare. On the subject of things that I didn't know about, I think I vaguely thought that Western Supermare was the fictional setting for Dad's Army, but I'm, I am reliably in informed that it's an actual place and I'm sure it's delightful. Apologies if any of that daily listenership of three and a half billion uh, people are tuning in from Western Supermare. I'm sure there are a few. Um, I have visited Western Supermare. Good Lord. Um, it's not very far from Bristol where I have friends. It's is is not... that what it says on the posters? Visit Western Supermare. <laughs> not very far from Bristol. <laughs> well, it reminds me of a poster when you used to attra- uh, approach Luton, which is a town in, in the north of London, and it says, Welcome to Luton, halfway between Oxford and Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to go back to the sea monster, I've seen photos of it. It looks rather engaging actually. Um, If it was nearer, like in Brighton, for example, and pluck a place out at random, I would go and see it. I mean, I do like big things and big events, and I I think you're right. These events, depending on what they're celebrating, do bring the country together. Um, It's just whether celebrating Brexit, which was such a divisive issue, you know, 52 to 48, was it right to celebrate it? It wasn't. It was politically inept. Mm. And the fact that it's failed is a pity, but was pretty predictable. See, Alex, I, I do share Ivor's fondness for the, the public folly. I even went to and actually quite enjoyed the Marble Arch Heap. I mean, I waited until they'd given up on it and just decided to wave people up for nothing. I wasn't, <laughs> course, I wasn't yes. paying five quid to climb up a thing made out of scaffolding and chicken wire, but nonetheless... I I, I, I I don't know. I thought it contributed to the general gaiety. Well, you know, I mean, that's the thing. As I say, I do quite like um, <laughs> kind of disastrous memorials. <laughs> I, I find very interesting. I look into the, you know, there's something I work on and, and I, I can find a place in my heart for them. But yes, I mean, I think, you know, some of the work may well, may well actually have been quite good. As you say, the sea monster actually looks quite engaging. As you say, I think it's quite interesting. But if you don't tell anyone it's happening, then nobody's going to go. And it seems like there was possibly a sort of, yes, rather, as I said, sort of doomed from the start, really. The entire it concept. is the sea monster is not dead. It is heading up to Liverpool, I understand. Oh, very which good. Are, which okay. is, of course, it, you know, feeling very, very pleased with itself, having won the right to stage Eurovision. Well, Liverpool from... is the city in the UK with the biggest number of statues after London. So already heavy on the memorials. So, uh, so I'm sure one more. 
they they'll just be so spoiled already. They just won't you know won't even notice it in Liverpool. Wait, can I can I use up your role and ask Alex Go a right question ahead. about statues? The government um, the government wanted the fourth plinth. There is an, a plinth in Trafalgar Square which has a rotating statue. The statue doesn't rotate. It should. That'd be amazing. <laughs> It'd be really good. Different statues are there, and the government let it be known they wanted it to be a statue of Elizabeth II. But the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has said no. We're going to continue to use it for different statues. Do you have a as a statue expert? Do you have a view on that? Yes, I'm very into impermanence. I think permanence is usually um, illusory anyway with statues. And actually, you can't set the past in stone, to put it rather literally. Um, so actually, I, I think it's rather lovely to have the fourth plinth as a rotating platform for art. As as you say, not literally rotating <laughs> as a platform, although that would be cool. That, that could be done. Um I think it's rather nice that that has that place in London that actually you can have a temporary piece and it's supposed to be temporary and transient. But would you be against a statue of Queen Elizabeth II somewhere else? Well, I'm pretty anti-statues generally, seeing them really as sort of very much rooted in the history of white supremacy, tyranny and uh, and patriarchy. Why do you hate the Queen, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> I think it could be a much more interesting memorial to the Queen. Um, artists can come up with much, much more interesting monuments than statues given uh, free reign. So I hope there will be something rather more creative and reflective of a rather more inclusive reign. Alex von Tontelman and Ivor Gaber, thank you both for joining us. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks also to Chris Chermack reporting from Philadelphia. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer and researched by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Listener.